Well, we have a lot of terrain to cover in uh, this morning's lesson because, as you'll recall from our first night, we described the flow of Jonah and we saw that there were two episodes. Episode one has three scenes. Episode two has three scenes, followed by a final scene. And uh, for the most part, we've been looking at the book of Jonah scene by scene, but how do you do seven scenes in five lessons? If in my, Even my math skills tell me that doesn't work out evenly. We're doing two of those scenes this morning. What we're going to look at is when prayers collide, because when we compare Jonah's first prayer with his second prayer, there is a significant collision uh, that takes place. But the author intends that. The author, by a, a number of things, by the parallel placement of these two prayers, scene two of episode one, scene two of episode two, by the parallel placement, he's inviting us to compare these. But before that, somebody remind me, what's one of the key things that Hebrew mothers taught their kids to do when writing to make sure that people got the point? One word. Repetition. repetition. Can you repeat that for me? <laughs> there we go, repetition. You'll also remember that we talked about the fact that in the beginning of the book, when the pagan sailors were in trouble, the first thing they did was they prayed. What did Jonah do when they were praying? He slept. Then the captain of the ship came down to Jonah, and he said, Jonah, wake up, pray to your God, and maybe he'll come and help us. Does the book give us any indication that Jonah prayed, even when told to by the captain of the ship? No, no. Therefore, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when it says... Now, Jonah prayed. It must be significant because of his silence at the beginning. But not only that, if you go over to chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Jonah prayed. That's an example of what our word? Repetition. Yeah, at the beginning of Jonah's prayer, it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord. And at the beginning of his second prayer, it says, he prayed to the Lord. And so this repetition is intended by the author to say, folks, these are parallel texts, not only because of their position in the story, but because finally Job prays twice. I want you to think about these two prayers together. And in addition to that, the author used some key words like love and grace and my life. And he uses some of these expressions only in Jonah's first prayer and in Jonah's second prayer. Nowhere else in the book. This is another example of what? Repetition. He repeats vocabulary in these two prayers, inviting you to think of them together, to look at them together. 
Because if you look at them together, you might see some things that you don't see if you look at them separately. And so not only do I need to kind of condense to get seven episodes into five lessons, but this one's actually inviting us to put these two texts of his first prayer and his second prayer uh, into the same lesson. So, Jonah uh, 2, 1 to 10. Let's just read it. This I'm calling Jonah's grateful prayer. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, he said. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From, the deep in the realm, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. I jokingly call Hebrew um, authors two-point Baptists. And what I mean by that, having grown up in the Baptist tradition, uh, a Baptist sermon has three components. The, the preacher says, okay, folks, here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. And he gives it to you in a really short form. And then he spends most of his time telling you what he told you he was going to tell you, but he does so in more detail. And then he concludes by telling you what he just told you, only it's short again. That's a three-point Baptist. Hebrew mothers told their kids to be two-point Baptists. Tell them what you're going to tell them in short form, and then tell them in detail. But don't tell them what you told them. That'd be a little bit too much. So we have everything we need in, the, in that one verse. Here's what the whole prayer is about. He's saying, Lord, thank you. I was in distress. I was deep in the realm of the dead. I called to you for help, and you answered me, and you delivered me. Thank you, God. That's the whole prayer. It's a song of thanksgiving, because as we'll see, when Jonah was thrown overboard, he, in our language, got one foot in the grave. Or he was gravely ill. He had a near-death experience. He didn't die, but he was close enough to dying that he speaks of his near-death experience as if he had died. And the fish swallows him and uh, saves him from drowning. And inside the fish, he says, praise the Lord. I had one foot in the grave. I sure am glad I'm in this fish and I am not in hell right now. So that's, he just told you the whole thing in short form. Uh, now let's keep going and look at some of the details here. Let me go back and tell you about my distress. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers uh, swept over me. I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. That's the end of the first half of the poem. Because remember, he told you in that little introduction, I'm going to tell you two things. I'm going to tell you what kind of trouble I was in. And then I'm going to tell you how God got me out of it. So in the verses that I just read, he's describing the trouble 
that he was in. And uh, what was that trouble? Got thrown overboard. Interesting, isn't it? Who threw him overboard? In, in the previous story, the sailors did. Who's he say threw him overboard in the prayer? God. Yes, yeah, see, he understands that God works, but how does God work as we discussed yesterday? Contingently. God works through secondary causes. So did God throw him overboard, or did the sailors throw him overboard? Yes. And the, the Bible doesn't answer the question, how is that the case? It just keeps teaching us in one way or another that God did it and we got to do it. And it doesn't wrestle with our philosophical or theological problem about, that doesn't quite make sense to me. Well, God apparently doesn't care if it makes sense to us, because if he did care, he would have given us an explanation. But he didn't give us an explanation. He just keeps telling us story after story. I'm doing it. You got to do it. I'm doing it. You got to do it. Uh, beautiful. Uh, humbling, right? Because we kind of think, well, don't we deserve an explanation? And God says, well, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And you know how high the, the sky is above you? Yeah, my thoughts are higher than that. So just relax. Be human. Be okay with not knowing everything. Uh, so this is Jonah's uh, distress. In verse 2 through the first half of verse 6, he's thrown overboard, verse 3. He's banished from God's presence, verse 4. He's entangled by seaweed, verse 5. Let's take a little bit of time and talk about this, uh, verse 6 uh, a, the first half. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. Uh, notice that sank down. That's the NIV. Uh, anybody have an ESV? What's the ESV stay instead of sank down? Went down. Oh, went down. Have we heard that word before? I remember uh, our friend Jonah lived up in Joppa in the mountains. And he went down to the coast. Then he went down onto the deck of the ship. And then he went down under the water line, uh, uh, under sea level. And now he goes down again. Remember, Hebrew mother said repeat. So this word is repeated four lines. Now he's going down. ESV says Sheol, right? Capital S, H. Uh, E-O-L, up in, I think it's what, verse 2, verse 3, or is it in verse 6? Verse 2, verse 2. And the reason why they they don't translate it is because they are, um, they are, they're taking it as a place name, like Jerusalem. I went down to Jerusalem. Uh, I went down to Mobile. They're taking it as a place name. And in Hebrew, it's Sheol, and so they're just translating it Sheol. The NIV, the translators of the NIV do it a little bit differently. What they say is, you know, the average American reading his or her Bible is going to come across Sheol, and they're going to say, what on earth is that? So instead of just translating it Sheol, we're going to tell them what it is. It's the realm of the dead. So that's why the NIV has the realm of the dead, because it's giving you the meaning of Sheol, 
rather than just giving you the Hebrew word in English letters. So, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. This is strange language to us, but it's very picturesque language uh, in Hebrew culture. Here's what we have to picture. Well, some of you maybe can picture this more easily than others. Have any of you ever driven down uh, big, through Big Sur in Northern California? Yeah, spectacular, huh? I, I kid you not. The closest I have ever felt to God in my entire life. My son was in Monterey uh, studying Chinese for the military. I got out there to visit him a day early. He was in class on Friday, so I had time off. So I thought, I'm going to just take a little excursion. So I rented a motorcycle. And uh, I drove down that road. Now, you got to remember that when you're on the West Coast, when you're driving south, the ocean is right there to your right. And when you're driving... So when we moved to Florida, I was, it was discombobulated because the ocean's on my right, but I'm going north. This doesn't make... So at any rate, it's, it's still confusing to me, <laughs> 21 years later. So at any rate... I am driving down the road, beautiful highway, and um, nobody is on the road. I'm probably going about 70 miles an hour, and I come over, I crest this hill, and there's this massive, beautiful meadow to my left, and then tree line behind it. And to my right... There's probably a thousand foot cliff, and at the bottom of that is the Pacific Ocean. And when you're in the outside lane, yeah, my wife's, when we drove it in a car, my wife's palms were sweating going north when we're on the inside lane. I'm on the outside lane. I'm on a motorcycle. And you just see this long stretch, a big dip and a rise, a long stretch of highway. I sense the presence of God in that beauty in a way that I never have before and may never again until I go to heaven. Just spectacular. But the point is, the mountains are right there. And the mountains come right down to the ocean. But the mountains that are under the water, they, it, it like the mountains don't like stop at sea level. They like keep going all the way down. That's why you have waves that break, right? Because the waves are coming in, and as the bottom of the ocean tilts up, all that water builds up, and it has to crest over. So, that's the picture here. You have to picture the mountains coming down and meeting the sea, but to the roots of the mountains, the base of the mountain, that goes under the water. That's the floor of the sea, in Jonah's case, it's the floor of the Mediterranean. This is the picture. Uh, because, by the way, if you want to go to the realm of the dead, well, let's say that you wanted to come into this building this morning. Did you just walk through a wall? No, what did, where did you go to get in? You went to a door. So I'll bet the realm of the dead must have a door as well. Now, keep in mind... 
we're speaking metaphorically about how ancients viewed these things. Like we say, oh man, I was so sick I had one foot in the grave. Really? I mean, you were really standing in the graveyard and there was an open grave and you put one foot in it? No, you didn't. We don't, we're not, we don't mean that literally. And this isn't meant literally as well. It's a beautiful figure of speech. So he goes down. Notice what it says. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. He went to the bottom of the Mediterranean, but then the earth beneath barred me in forever. Barred me in? Yeah. Because the ancients pictured the entrance to Sheol, the realm of the dead, at the bottom of the sea. And there's a door there. And so Jonah went down through the door, and the door has bars on it so that you can't do what once you go in? You can't get out. So what's he say? Barred me in forever. Clang, like you see in the movies where somebody goes to prison and you hear the clang of the metal gate behind them, locked in. That's what this is a picture of. Uh, he was a goner, so to speak. By the way, have you ever wondered why Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, and what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Where did Jesus get the idea that hell had gates? Well, he's a first century Jew, and he understands all of this beautiful imagery from the Old Testament, and uh, somebody from another culture would have heard Jesus perhaps and said, what's this guy talking about, gates, hell? But no Jew that Jesus was talking to in the first century would have said that. They would have all said, yeah, we get it. Hell has gates. And what Jesus is saying is, the gates of hell cannot withstand my onslaught. See, these gates were intended, in Jesus' language, to keep him out. Uh, but he said, these gates aren't going to be able to keep me out. I'm going to be able to break right through those gates. Well, guess what? In the imagery of this book, that's exactly what the big fish did. See, Jonah says, I descended to the bottom of the sea. I went down through the entrance to Sheol, the realm of the dead. The gates closed behind me forever. I was a goner. But praise God, he sent the whale to break through those gates. See, the, the big whale, the big fish, it's a picture of Jesus. Breaking through the, the gates of death in order to save Jonah. So trust me, when he's in the belly of the fish, he's not saying, ooh, God, this is like yucky, get me out of here. He's saying, praise God, I used to be in hell, and this fish is delivering me home. I, this is like my Mercedes-Benz ride of a lifetime. He was thankful in the belly of the fish because God had delivered him from the, from the realm of the dead. Now, that is Jonah's distress, and in the second part of his prayer, he then recounts how God delivered him. Notice how verse 6 goes on. So, I'm, I'm down... Oh, let me pause for one second. We were chatting about the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, and there's something strange in the Apostles' Creed that I have no answer for, and that is, why do we say... 
um, that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell and come back to that. And on the third day, he was raised again. Why do we say again? An interesting conversation. It's not in the Latin Vulgate, which is where, but I'm going to do some research. And I'm going to research the, um, I'm going to research the history of English translations of the uh, Latin version of the Apostles' Creed. See if I can track down where this again came from. But keep in mind, the Apostles' Creed comes from 700 AD. It's not the original creed. The original creed was called the Old Roman Creed. It's from 400, so 300 years earlier. But in that 300 years, a number of things, issues had come up in the church, and so they thought that it was important to add a few things to the original Roman Creed. First thing they added, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, the old Roman creed, I believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only son. But by 700, they said it's so important to confess the doctrine of creation that we're going to put it in right after, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Another thing that was added is he descended into hell. Well, some of our churches have taken that out of the creed because they don't believe Jesus descended into hell, not literally. Uh, our denomination doesn't believe that that happened literally. Um, so they've taken it out. And, and one argument for taking it out is it's not original. Yeah, but nobody's taking out maker of heaven and earth, and it's not original. So at any rate, sticky wicket. I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm tempted not to put a foot into it lest I get stuck in it, but I'm going to anyhow. I will admit up front that I'm a minority among Reformed and Presbyterian types. I'm a, I'm a minority that I believe that Jesus descended into hell, like we say in the Apostles' Creed. Now, in our Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian Puritan tradition, if you look in our standards, here's how it interprets he descended into hell. It says that Jesus lay under the power of death for three days. So they're not taking descended into hell literally. They're saying it's a metaphor for Jesus being under the power of death for three days. We have uh, some very close cousins in the Reformed world. Uh, they're Dutch Christians. Uh, Dutch Christians... Uh, the Christian Reformed Church, the Reformed Church of America, uh, the United Reformed Church, they, their roots don't go back to Scotland. Their roots go back to the Netherlands. We're close cousins. We like them. They're family. <clears throat> but they don't, they don't subscribe to the Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. They have developed because they're, they were in Holland. They weren't in Scotland or, or in England. They developed their own standards, the Belgic Confession, beautiful stuff, and uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Lots of Presbyterians like the Heidelberg Catechism um, because in the Westminster Standards, it takes you a good many questions to find Jesus. In the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question is, what is my only hope in life and in death? It's that I belong to my faithful Savior. 
You meet Jesus in question number one. So a lot of Presbyterians will use that in church services in, if for their own confession of faith. This morning we're going to use the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one, not the Apostles' Creed. Christians, what do you believe? Uh, so, because you meet Jesus right away. Uh, but at any rate, in the Dutch tradition, they have a different interpretation of descended into hell. They say that this means that Jesus suffered a hellish agony for us on the cross. Uh, but notice, none of them really say that Jesus descended into hell. And uh, it would take a lesson to go into detail for why I think what the creed says literally is what it means, which might sound kind of odd because I spent a good bit of time this weekend saying, well, don't take this literally. <laughs> but I think that's what's going on with the creed. I think Jesus descended into hell. Uh, just like the fish phew, broke through and brought Jonah back. What is this shield that we've been talking about? Well, I'm not sure, sure, sure enough to preach a sermon on it, but I'm sure enough to talk about it in a Sunday school class. I think in the Old Testament times, Sheol was the place where the departed spirits of all of the dead went, good, bad, and ugly. Sheol is not heaven. It is not a nice place. That's why psalmists will say repeatedly, like Jonah did, praise God, he kept me from going down into the pit. Lord, don't let me go down into Sheol, into the pit, into the realm of the dead, because there's no work there. It's dark. It's wet. It's mucky. There's no praise of God in the realm of the dead. That's why the psalmist always wants to stay in the land of the living, where there's meaningful labor, where there's meaningful worship of God. So if I'm right, notice I'm saying if, the realm of the dead in the Old Testament is the place where all departed go indiscriminately. Oh, but then comes Jesus. And Jesus lives a perfect life of righteousness in our place. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He descends into hell. And in the language of Peter, he preaches the gospel. I don't think that's Noah preaching to his uh, contemporaries. Interesting, read the story of Noah and the flood and write down everything that Noah says while he's building the flood, while he's on the ark. Uh, you don't even need a pencil or a paper to write it all down. Why not? He says absolutely nothing in the whole story. Nothing. So there's no record in the Bible that Noah actually was preaching. as like the movies will make out. You know, he's building and everybody's around there mocking him and he's saying, you all better repent or you're going to die in the flood. Yeah, there's nothing in the Bible about that at all. Makes for a good Hollywood movie, not in the Bible. For all we know, Noah was isolated somewhere and none of his supposed neighbors even knew what the guy was doing. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We might like to know. God says, too bad, I wasn't interested in telling you. 
I'm only interested in telling you the things that you need to know. And by the way, you got enough to focus on with what I've told you so as not to worry about what I didn't tell you. Just leave that stuff to me. I'll take care of it all in the end. So, uh, you also have this text in Ephesians where it says, he who, who is he who ascended, but he who first descended to the lower parts of the earth? Our translations, because they're like Dutch or Scottish with their funny interpretations of the Apostles' Creed, they said he, des- he descended to the lower region, comma, that is the earth. No, that's a little fudging. He descended into the lower regions of the earth. Um, think about the, um, the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Where? Does anybody know? Heaven above. Earth beneath. Waters under the earth. Well, that's a whole weekend together to put that picture together. But don't try to match it up with our understanding of the universe. Not intended to. It's a picture of the universe where there's heaven above, earth below, and then waters under the earth. Where is Sheol? Under the earth. The waters under the earth. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who dwell in it. Because he founded the earth on the seas and established it upon the currents. Beautiful picture throughout. That would take a weekend to do. I'm not inviting myself back. (laughs) But I did just do that weekend for Sam Smith uh, in... uh, Lake in Georgia, east of um, east of Atlanta. So, so in other words, who is he who ascended, but he who first descended to the lower parts? Ephesians preached to the people in prison, those who were imprisoned in Sheol, brought captivity captive, brought all the faithful out of Sheol. Have you in Luke? Strange story. When Jesus is raised from the dead, anybody remember what happened to the tombs in Jerusalem? All the tombs open and dead people come back and they're walking around in Jerusalem. What's that all about? Yeah, well, it makes sense if Jesus descended into hell like the fish. Preach the gospel. People believe the gospel. They experienced that resurrection and came out of the realm of the dead also. And that's, I think, the big picture that we have here in this, yeah, not-so-simple book of Jonah. Confronts us with a lot of deep stuff. So that's Jonah talking about his distress. But then he says at the second half of verse 6, But you, Lord, my God, brought me up from the pit. The pit is another way of referring to the realm of the dead. From Sheol I cried, you brought me up from Sheol, but here he calls it, you brought me up from the pit. The pit is where people go when they die. Uh, There's an expression in Hebrew where the psalmist will frequently say, don't let me be one of the Yoredei Bor, descenders to the pit. It's a metaphor for death. Uh, euphemism, we call it, right? What do we, what do we say about somebody so as not to say they died? 
passed away. It's a little gentler, isn't it, right? What if we're being a little bit humorous? What did they kick? They kicked the bucket. So we have ways of referring to death that are a little gentler, and so does the Bible. New Testament says those who have fallen asleep. Uh, And here, they're those who descend to the pit. So Jonah metaphorically descended into the pit, but God sent the fish, and you brought my life up from the pit. Oh, now wait a second. Did God bring him up from the pit, or did the fish bring him up from the pit? Yes, because God frequently acts contingently through secondary causes. So it is okay to go to the doctor. Yeah, it's not a sign of unbelief. You can trust God and go to the doctor. You don't have to say, well, either I'm going to trust God or I'm going to go to the doctor. No, no, that's not a biblical way of thinking. You can trust God and go to the doctor. My dad had some not-so-good experiences throughout his life. He wasn't real big on the medical profession, so he would say, yeah, you really got to trust God when you go to the doctor. (laughs) I don't share his cynicism. I've had very good experiences uh, with the medical profession. My dad, not so much. Just one example. He went into hospital for kidney stones. And he just wasn't passing them, just wasn't passing them. So the, that, the, 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 this, this particular morning, they were going to uh, go in and surgically remove the stones. Nurse comes in. Uh, she gets his uh, urine bottle, goes to dump it down the toilet. And my dad says, stop! You're supposed to strain that. So she said, oops, I forgot. And she strains it. You know what was in there. Kidney stones. And if he hadn't stopped her, he would have had an unnecessary procedure. Yeah, for some reason, he was like a magnet for this kind of thing. It happened, it happened too many times. Uh, a fungal infection in his throat for which they were giving him antibiotics, which was like pouring gasoline on. I don't know. My dad was a great guy. I love him. He, but, uh, yeah, he just had some weird experiences. But at any rate, you got my point. You you trust God and you go to the doctor. The fish delivered him and God uh, delivered him. Uh, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Uh, Then he talks about those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from the love, uh, from God's love for them. A bit of irony here, because he probably has those sailors in mind. But we know those sailors are godly people. He's still thinking of them as idol worshipers, turning away from God's love. But who's the one that turned away from God's love? Yeah, see, he's still thinking that they're the bad guys and I'm the good guy, when in reality, it's really just the opposite. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Does this ring any bells? Sacrifices and vows? Finally, Jonah's starting to catch up to the pagans because they offered sacrifice and they made vows uh, when God stopped the storm for them. Uh, Just one more thing. Wow. We're only on the first point. That's okay. We'll, We'll pick up the pace a bit. 
And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, that's a weird word, right? It's, it's interesting sometimes when you study the Bible to say, why did the author use this word and not some other word? Because notice, we're not told what God said. It just, the Bible, it just says the Lord commanded the fish to do what? We're not told. All we're told is the fish uh, vomited Jonah onto dry land. So we can presume that God said to the fish, vomit him on the dry land. Now, um, why didn't it say, and the fish brought him back to dry land? That's a little nicer. Why didn't it say the fish placed him on dry land, put him on dry land, set him on dry land? Why did it use a disgusting term? And get your little concordance out and look for vomit everywhere you want to in the Old Testament, and it's always in a disgusting context. Yeah. And I, how many of you have had boys? And how many of you have had to say to them multiple times at the dinner table, bathroom conversation is not appropriate here? It just seems that with boys, the conversation goes to something about the bathroom at dinner time. Uh, and if they were to say vomit at dinner, you would say, not at dinner. That's disgusting. And the same is true in Hebrew. And I think this is the narrator's way of telling us what God thinks about Jonah's prayer. See, we look at it and we say, wow, that is a beautiful prayer of a repentant man. But where do we look? On the outward, where does God look? He still knows what's going on in Jonah's heart. So that's Jonah's grateful prayer. Let's take a quicker look, starting in chapter 4, verse 2, at uh, Jonah's angry prayer. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Here's Jonah telling us why he fled. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's strange. It's silly. It's senseless. But it's in keeping with Jonah's name. You would think Jonah would say, Lord, you're sending me to Nineveh, to these pagans. I know who you are. You're good, you're kind, you're gracious, you're compassionate. You're sending me there to tell them 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But I know you're telling me to give them that message, not so that they'll be destroyed, but because you love to turn away from calamity that you've threatened. I know you're telling them that so that they'll repent and then you will relent, and we'll all live happily after. When can I get on my first flight to Nineveh, God? But no, he has so much of an us-them mentality. He says, if I go to those bad people in Nineveh, they're going to get saved. And so where am I going? As far away in the other direction as I can, because they're bad, I'm good, I don't want them to have any part 
of God's goodness. I just want them to get God's judgment because that's what they deserve. And the presumption is, if they deserve it, I don't. I'm really different than them. And so this text, again, is forcing us to ask ourselves about the other people and what our fundamental heart's attitude is toward them and what we what we want for them deep down in our heart of hearts. And the them might be that cousin that you hate. The them might be those uh, illegal immigrants that are going to change the contour of our country. The them might be uh, radical uh, Arab terrorists who want to destroy us. But the book of Jonah is asking us to look inside. Knowing who God is. What did it say? Gracious. Compassionate. Slow to anger. Abounding in love. A God who relents from sending judgment. Knowing who God is, what should our hearts look like? toward all of our thems, to all of our Ninevites. And the book is asking us, do our hearts look like God's heart, or do our hearts look like Jonah's heart? What's going on? Yeah, I I told you, Jonah's a very fun, uh, short, interesting, simple book that asks the most uncomfortable questions of us when we slow down and read it carefully. I have, the, I have a good friend who passed away, died, kicked the bucket, <laughs> fell asleep. Wonderful, wonderful fellow. Died very young. He had a wonderful father, brilliant man, inventor of all kinds of things. Um, his father used to say, I love to speed read. Because speed reading shows me very quickly what books I need to read slowly. And when we slow down with a very simple book like Jonah, it can get uncomfortable because of the probing questions that it asks us with regard to where our hearts are. And are our hearts like Jonah? Or are our hearts like God? Finding the heart of God, Jonah, The book of Jonah is our story. Uh, I wonder if Jonah got the lesson. Well, I got one more lesson to teach in a sermon during the worship service, and it's that last hanging out there scene where God tries one more time to get to Jonah's heart, we'll see what happens. Lord willing, uh, we'll be able to address that in the sermon later this morning.